0: You know, when I was training to teach, at some point Jack Kornfeld told us that when people become teachers, often they do it one of two ways. Either the person who is their mentor, their teacher, insists that they have gone through certain levels of practice and had certain openings of the mind and the heart and then you become a teacher but he said some teachers just throw you in the ocean and say start teaching and then see what happens and as I reflected on this interesting turning place in my life of teaching I kind of think I was in the latter group of being thrown into the ocean and all of you have helped me learn how to teach Mm -hmm. and um, I was, just as I started I was thinking back to those early years in the Zendo, and there's a few of you here tonight who were there when we met on Thursday evenings in the Santa Cruz Zen Center over on School Street and in the very early years, I didn't even dare give a talk because it just felt too presumptuous to say that I was giving a Dharma talk. So what I did was I gave Dharmats. It's actually become a kind of a, a term now when we train leaders. People learn to give Dharmats first before they give Dharma talks. You know, and I talk about a list or whatever. And, only gradually did I ease into the Dharma talk world. So on Tuesday, somebody said to me, well, what are you going to talk about on Thursday night? And I said, well, I don't know right now. I do have a request? And she said, yes. She said, I want you to talk about purple hair. <laughs> <laughs> but she's not here tonight, I don't think. <laughs> I don't think. I'm not sitting here anywhere So I guess she's not going to find out the dharma of purple hair, at least not this time (laughs) around. Mm. But I said I would do it. So that's where we'll start anyway, we'll see where we end up. So as many of you know, because there have been so many stories about it, um... I have a husband who's gone to Burning Man for many, many years, and um, I hated it for years that he went, I just hated it, I had lots of resistance, I, we had, I would sometimes just lose any composure I ever had, and yelling, and crying, and... I was not the kind of person who would go there. I didn't want to be married to somebody who went there. How could he do such a thing in such a disgusting place? And I was definitely not one of them. And I certainly didn't go there. And, and so, you know, I had a very, very strong identification with being a certain kind of person a bit on the quiet side except when I wasn't a bit on the proper side certainly not into sex and drugs and rock and roll and not into the wildness that I understood Bernie me on to be so I was very very you know I was just rooted in this place but you know I love this man and um, and I watched him change as the years went by and he kind of dug in and just kept on doing it no matter what I said and slowly slowly I could see him change and I got to hear some of his stories and I saw many of his photographs and I began to think hmm you know maybe something's there and I realized I couldn't live I couldn't live with the choice not to go when it was a choice that was made out of fear which was what it was I was really afraid of what would happen at Burning Man and so there came a day when I said well, I think it actually came he said, I don't think you should go and then of course I immediately went (laughs) I don't know about that (laughs) Maybe I should go. And so there was this just funny little shift (coughs) that began to happen. You know, shift in identity and shift in the sense of who I was. And so I became a person first who was thinking about going to Burning Man, and then I became a person who was going to Burning Man. And just that, it was a little shocking. You know, every now and then I'd say to somebody, I think I'm going to go to Burning Man this year. It was actually a year ago, last August. And it felt really uncomfortable. Like this wasn't this wasn't who I was. You know, how could I be going to bring me out with some unknown territory? And <laughs> I didn't have any confidence. And but I had decided I was going to go. And often when you know, that happens to me, I I stick with it. And I did. And so the. Decision came to make some put some color in my hair to celebrate the occasion Which is kind of interesting Because many of you know the story. I'm not going to tell it tonight But one w- one year when Russell was at Burning Man, I was convinced he was going to come home with purple hair And I was absolutely certain that I could not live with a man who had purple hair <laughs> I don't know that I can live with a man with purple hair, but then I went and got my own So, I walked into the world after doing this. I think my first expedition was Trader Joe's on 41st Avenue. As a woman of certain years with purple hair. And I discovered that it created an entirely new interface with the people that I met. And suddenly, I found that I was somehow interesting to people <laughs> and f- apparently friendly, because I guess purple hair means you're friendly, and, and anyone seemed to be able to approach me and comment on the hair and wish that they had the courage to do it or tell me about their plans to do it or, whatever now I suspect there were a whole group of people I can usually spot them Mm -hmm. they're not the really young women and they're not the older women but there's sometimes a group in the middle who look at me with a little bit of like spare me and they don't say anything (laughs) they don't say anything but I got really interested in this level of interaction that I was having because it wasn't me It, it it was something I, I didn't recognize myself in this interaction. And it was happening with people of all ages and all colors in all parts of the country because I travel a lot. And I just got interested. Like, how could this be? And, um, and my, one of the most interesting things that happened, and maybe it was what solidified it for a while, was that I had taught a retreat, some of you know this story, but I think all of you do, I taught a retreat in Philadelphia. And it had been a pretty happy retreat. I thought I'd taught well, students were really worked really hard, the end of the retreat came, I felt really good, I got left at the airport, and walked in with my baggage and my boarding passes and all, because I'd already checked in. And I started to go towards one of the kiosks, and one of the airport... Uh, workers came toward me and said oh you don't have to do that just bring your bags right over here really big tall older black man and he walked toward me and he got about as close to me maybe a little closer than where Kirsten is and he looked down at me because he was very tall and he began to laugh <laughs> and I looked up at him and he had such delight on his face he was just beaming and laughing and I said oh it's the hair isn't it and he grinned some more and then he threw his arms around me, <laughs> <laughs> and we have this enormous hug in the middle of the Philadelphia airport <clears throat> now I don't think it's the normal thing for black airport attendants to hug white women they don't know in the Philadelphia airport it's just not unfortunately I mean, it would be great if it were but it's not and it was so amazingly wonderful because there was this connectedness that was there that would not have otherwise been there. And I think I actually flew myself home from Philadelphia after that. I was, I was just so high and so happy. And so I had somehow, I realized, have realized over the months, I walked out of some kind of conventional appearance of looking like just an older woman with wrinkles and white hair and into this other whatever it is that it is. So what's true, this is a truth for all of us, you know, we all get very habituated to who it is that we are. Each one of you, if I were to say to you, tell me about yourself we could probably talk for hours you could tell me your history and how it was when you were growing up and you could tell me about your relationships and the ones that worked and the ones that didn't and you could tell me about which foods you will eat and which foods you won't eat and what you like to do for exercise and what kind of clothing you like to wear and where you like to live and where you don't like to live you know, it goes on for forever, right? we all have all of that stuff and so we often get very identified with who it is that we are. And every one of us, it's a, it's a phrase I've, I. It now has a little bit of a, a hazard tape around it for me. It says, I am a person who. And you can fill in blank. You know, I am a person who. And it's not you're not supposed to have needs or preferences. We all we all do, but they often we get kind of in a rut with them and they blind us from the possibilities that might be there. The Buddha says any clinging whatsoever whatsoever causes suffering. And that includes the clinging to the habitual patterns that make up our notion of self. That when we get caught in that, then we will suffer. We will. So, you know, this whole series of teachings, this is the last Thursday night, and then we have the day long, on Saturday, and then that's it for a while, until I come back as a... I'm coming back as grandma, in case you haven't heard that, um, in about a year, and so it'll be a different relationship with Vipassana Santa Cruz, but I will be back. But you know, it's very interesting getting, I'm finding, getting to be the age I am, because now I'm in my 71st year. My mother always loved to name her birthdays I and she would say, now I'm in my 70s, she'd just gotten to be 70, she was in her 71st year so some of you I think are there with me but a lot of you are coming along you're not there yet but you know it becomes pretty apparent that what lies ahead at some point let's say in the next 30 years if I have lots of time um, is that very strange and scary event that we call dying and the uh, utter loss of identity as I now know it and as we know it. And I find I can't anymore hold on to that notion that I think most of us have when we're young that somehow, you know, I'm just always going to be there somehow because I've always been there as far as I remember, right? And then I'll always be me but I don't think so. And impermanence, the Buddha says, is one of the most important of insights, one of the most important insights that we can have because it just knocks us over when we take it in, when we really get it in some deep way that everything that has the nature to arise has the nature to pass away, including meat and you there will come a point when none of us will be here I was listening to NPR yesterday as I was driving home from Spirit Rock and there was a segment I was listening to Marketplace and it was a segment about transportation and climate change and you know all this stuff, the subways are going to be flooded and what are they going to do with the tracks and the you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. and how the seas are expected to rise and by the end of the century and I thought, by the end of the century I won't know how it comes out <laughs> you know, and it's true we're not going to know how it comes out probably, none of us in this room and even if you live way to the end of the century if there's a few of you who are that young I don't know you 're still not going to know how it comes out because then there'll be something else that 's going on, and we don 't get to find out the end of the story it 's a very breathtaking kind of thing to think about once in a while that that 's the kind of that 's impermanence that 's what 's going to happen and so this identity this Mary grace orness or your identity whatever it just barely holds itself together most of the time anyway. And, you know, already body changes, you know, memories, Uh, lots of us in this room already having those interesting episodes when the memories won't come back. What is her name? You know, and you can't quite retrieve it or you can't remember exactly what happened. And then, you know, maybe it seems to happen more and more now, beginning to know people who have dementia or who are moving into Alzheimer's and who are going through those enormous changes that happen when the personality leaves before the body does. So what's that? What is happening with this identity that is so shallow? You know that that and and it creates, I think, a certain level of anxiety. Most older people I know. Are admitting that they are more anxious than they used to be. And I think some of it's just because we're beginning to sense that it isn't, it's a little harder to hold it all together day to day. Now, it's really important to say that we need in time and space an identity. It's really important that you know your name and your address and your zip code and where to go tonight and which bed to crawl into because otherwise it might be difficult if you just choose one out of the blue. And <laughs> so that's, that's part of a healthy adult ego. Lots of you have spent lots of time and energy and money learning how to have that kind of strong sense of self, and the rest of you have earned a lot of money while those people come to you to learn how to have that strong sense of self. Very helpful. But it's not ultimately going to last. So both of those things are true, both that relative truth and then this more interesting and ultimate truth. And so sometimes it's helpful to step back into the sense of identity. I really want to to acknowledge that, that those nights when you go home and you put on your favorite jammies and your favorite bathrobe and you eat macaroni and cheese or toasted cheese sandwiches or whatever it is for you that does it for you and and you watch your favorite old movie, and you kind of touch back in on some sense of identity that provides a sense of structure and safety and firmness for the moment. But it is only for the moment, not refuge that we take in a a particular habitual way of being. But if you hold on to it, if you cling, you will suffer, and it will not last. So, it's, it can be very interesting to begin to have a practice of letting go into something other than what we hold ourselves to be. I love it when people come and they say, I'm going to a retreat for the first time. What's going to happen? You know, and they're really scared. And, I don't know what they think is. I've never actually really figured out what they think is going to happen at a retreat but they're really scared by the silence and, and that it's a retreat and, and then they do it and you know you don't you kind of park your normal sense of self your career and your habitual patterns at the door and you put yourself in the retreat schedule and, and the retreat atmosphere and something happens and things shift and change And often we open into some kind of (coughs) insight or seeing ourselves in some new way or seeing the world and reality in some new way. So we can begin to do this. You don't have to wait to go to a retreat. You know, have that habit of (coughs) some several times a year doing something you have never done before. Never done before. It could be simple, you know. It could be reading a kind of book that you've never read, read before or going to a certain kind of movie that you've never gone to before, eating a certain kind of food that you don't normally eat or coloring your hair purple or green or orange or whatever strikes your fancy or go someplace where you've never been before. Come to Burning Man with me next year, you know. That would be <laughs> great. I thought we should have the Vipassana Santa Cruz Burning Man campaign. But when we do that, when you place yourself into that kind of shift and change, then we discover, you know, it's not the end of the world. It's not. Now, it will be at some point. Who knows what happens in that interesting event that that is death. But to begin to practice that kind of letting go into something completely other and discovering that, it can be worked with is I think very very helpful and when we do that we begin to see that this self that we have so identified with being in a particular way is very fluid and very changeable and sometimes it just disappears for a while and that question who am I who are you? That's the question that underlies all spiritual practice. You know? Why are we here? What does this mean? What is this? This thing that we are part of. And when we lock into doing the same old, same old, being the way we have always been, same clothes, same vacations, same work, same habits of being, our picture gets really small and narrow it's not so very helpful and often in that small and narrow picture the notion of change and impermanence and death becomes really, really scary and when we experiment with the letting go and moving into the change then the possibilities become much more and much more inclusive You know, I thought a lot because my monastic friends who shave their heads and shave their eyebrows and wear funny-looking robes um, and walk around in the world and, you know, people sometimes think they're a little strange but often if you're a monastic what I hear from them is that they are assumed to be safe and harmless and people will talk to them or, you know, Get curious about how they are. And, um, and one of their practices, besides shaving their heads and their eyebrows, is that they don't have homes. They are literally homeless. And even if they settle in a monastery for a while, they're often, they move around from one place to another, just so that, you know, they've been in this cottage for a while, then you move over to this cottage, and then you move up the hill to that one so that you don't get identified with anything in particular. Not your hair, not your eyebrows, and not your house. So, we are lay people. None of you, I don't think, maybe, a couple of you have, I know, in the past, but most of us are not going to shave our heads and become monks or nuns. So we have to find our own way of doing this. To find our own way of letting go of our solid and concrete identity and somehow making ourselves open to the world and to the other beings in it. Not everyone. I don't expect to find very much purple hair, even in a year when we come back, although that would be fun, to come back and find you all with purple hair. But, you know, to find a way to begin to play with your identity. Do it as play. It's really better done as play. Don't do it as a chore. That's not so helpful. But do it as play to begin to experiment with what happens if I'm a little softer, a little more open. How do I let the world know that I'm friendly and harmless? How do I learn to be friendly and harmless? so I wanted to end with two things one was the story a very very old Dharma story it's been around the Vipassana circuit for a while because it comes from the time when Jack Cornfield was studying in Asia and he and some friends were going to meet with one of the senior teachers there at that time I don't even know now who it was and and um, you know, they were impressed that they were going to have this meeting, and they wanted to ask really good questions. Of course, you know. So they thought, well, you know, what's the best question to ask? And one of the best and most central questions is the question, well, what is this about self and no self? And this monk, because he, I do know that he was a monk, thought about it for a minute, grinned, got this big grin, and then he said. No self, no problem. (laughs) And that was the answer. No self, no problem. So the other ending is from Hafiz. And um, the poem is entitled, Burn Every Address for God. But you could also consider that perhaps you're burning every address for yourself. Burn Every Address for God Any beloved who has just one color of hair, one gender, one race, the same suntan all the time, one rule book. Trust me when I say, that person is not even half a god and will only cause you grief. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listening.